and welcome to episode 53 of Screaming Through the Ages. On this episode, I'm back with some more horror history. I'm going to start out here with, you know, probably the meat of the show, which is the anniversary of The Exorcist. And this is the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist. And pretty close, you know, within a couple weeks, we're going to be to the exact day of this. So I really wanted to get this one in before the end of the year. I had another one I wanted to do, but I just didn't have time to fit it in here. So I will warn you, I have a ton of background that I'm going to be getting into, a lot of history of the, you know, usually when I'm covering stuff for this show, not everything has a ton of background and information to go with it. And... You know, that's even with something like the Amityville Horror, I don't feel like it had and it didn't have like an exponential amount of data to go with it. It was decent. I had enough meat to talk about it. Even Amityville 2 had a decent amount about it. But every once in a while something comes along like The Exorcist, which has so much information that I actually have to cut stuff. There is a ton here and I have to kind of pick and choose what I actually want to talk about. Not saying I don't do that normally, but it was pretty extreme with this. I mean, you can read details specifically about, you know, certain scenes in the film and certain, I mean, to an extent, there's probably more about the curse, supposed curse surrounding this film than there is uh, total information on a lot of films. So what I'm trying to say is there's a lot on The Exorcist. Um, I picked out all of the pieces that I thought would be interesting to talk about And I'm going to go through this, but just hang in there because this is going to be a long ride. So first and foremost, if you aren't aware, the film is an adaptation of William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist. Now, Blatty struggled to sell both the novel and his screenplay of the film. The novel didn't really sell well until Blatty appeared on the Dick Cabot show and had a debate whether the devil existed or not. After his appearance on the show, The Exorcist became a New York Times bestseller soon after. When writing the screenplay for the adaptation, Blatty tried to stick close to the novel, but glazed over certain aspects in order to focus on a central plot. Some of these included the desecration of the churches, getting the exorcism approved, and more of the medical testing, so there were much deeper passages about this in the novel, I think the approach, you know, a lot of times what gets cut in film adaptations of books are we cut a lot of the side stories, we cut some of the side characters, and we try to get it down to the most base plot that'll fit into, you know, a an hour and a half, two hour film. I think Blatty's approach here, and it's probably different because, you know, he knows the source material, he wrote the source material. None of that stuff is cut out. It's just very toned down. You know, we have less scenes of, and and some of it seems like, you know, rewatching it this time, especially getting like the exorcism approval. Yeah, there's not a lot going on there. It's pretty quick. So in the desecration of churches, it's like one scene and then it's brought up later in the film. So I appreciate what he did in focusing on the main story, not cutting anything from the main story and not really cutting anything in general. He just wanted to briefly touch on that stuff. And I honestly, I don't know how we could get much more medical testing. I feel like the medical stuff makes up a good chunk of this film. 
Some of these sexual aspects were also toned down due to the expected age of the actors who would play the role. I'm not going to get into any details here, but this mainly revolves around a scene of masturbation that happens um, within the story that kind of goes on for a lot longer than anything does in the film. Her condition was also more up for debate in the novel, as it wasn't as clear whether Reagan had a medical condition or was actually possessed. A lot of different directors were considered for the film, including Stanley Kubrick, Peter Bogdanovich, and Arthur Penn. Warner Brothers ultimately decided on Mark Rydell, but Blatty wasn't happy with their decision. He instead wanted William Friedkin, who was an acquaintance of his at the time, who he thought could bring a sense of documentary-style realism to the film. Studio continued to fight him until the French Connection had success and won an Academy Award, and then they relented. Blatty sent Friedkin a copy of his novel during the French Connection press tour, and Friedkin was gripped by it. He claimed there'd be no issue in adapting the novel to film. Now, Blatty and Friedkin got into it, into arguments and all that at several points during the production, but Warner's always sided with Friedkin in the dispute and basically said, you know, Blatty, you can't take any action against Friedkin. Blatty was concerned about the budget and warned them that he couldn't be responsible for it anymore, and we'll get into that budget issue. The two would reconcile eventually, but to Blatty's point, and this was a very troubled production, there were a lot of issues that came up, a lot of unforeseen stuff that popped up, and a lot of that, I feel like some of that we can get into conjecture on that, but I feel like a lot of that was Friedkin's fault. There were circumstances outside of his control for sure, but the estimated budget from the studio was $4.2 million and would rise to around $12 million by the end of production. Friedkin did several things during filming to manipulate reactions out of the actors, including firing blanks from a pistol, slapping actors, and lying about where the fake vomit would hit an actor. This led to genuinely shocked reactions during filming, and while that certainly is one method of directing, it's probably not one that will get you uh, repeat customers as far as actors are concerned. Friedkin earned the nickname Wacky Willy on set due to how difficult he was to work with and how spontaneous his decisions were. He was constantly hiring and firing crew members and reshooting scenes, in fact, in one instance, it was said that Friedkin was seen shaking hands with a crew member and um, welcoming them on board, and two hours later screaming for him to be taken off the set. Now, the reshooting became a real problem, and they got to the point where the crew would even take bets on which scene he would reshoot next. Some of the reshoots were for especially difficult-to-film scenes as well, and I feel like there were a lot of those within this film. And a little anecdote to kind of how insane he was on this film. Uh, on the first day of filming, he knocked out a wall to get a shot of bacon frying. He needed to make room for the camera to get that shot. When he didn't like how the bacon was cooking, he sent a crew member out to buy the harder to find at the time preservative free bacon. So yeah, kind of a little bit like a diva there. But uh, yeah, we won't we won't judge. Uh, rest in peace, Mr. Friedkin. Casting was also a difficult process. 
The studio wanted to use some of the stars of the era, but Blatty and Friedkin insisted on using lesser-known actors. Several people were considered for the role of Father Karras, but Stacy Keach was ultimately hired by Blatty for the role. But as we all know, that didn't stick, so what happened? Well, Jason Miller, who would go on to play Father Karras, bumped into Friedkin after his performance in a play, and Friedkin gave him a copy of the novel. Miller was studying to become a Jesuit priest until he had a crisis of faith similar to Father Karras. And he basically just said to Friedkin, look, Father Karras is me. This is my story. And although Keech was already signed, Friedkin let him do a screen test, let Miller do a screen test. He thought Miller was exactly the right person for the role and convinced the studio to buy out Keech's contract. So it's things like that that contribute to the budget inflating, but ultimately I think it was the right choice to go with. Audrey Hepburn, Jane Fonda, and Anne Bancroft were all considered for the role of Chris, but all three declined it. Friedkin wanted Carol Burnett to play the role, but the studio refused this. Ellen Burstyn told Friedkin she was destined to play the role of Chris. Studio head Ted Ashley was against this, however, but finally agreed as there weren't really any other options for the role. So I guess uh, Burstyn got it by default, but I think she does a good job. So fortunate that worked out. Several young actresses were considered for the role of Reagan, but most of their parents wouldn't let them be in the film, including Janet Lee, who refused to let her daughter Jamie Lee Curtis take the role. That would have been a very different film, I feel like, if Jamie Lee Curtis was the one in it, but uh, I digress. They were to the point of considering older actors when Linda Blair and her mother walked in, and Friedkin had a conversation with her that I think, frankly, is something Friedkin probably shouldn't have been talking about with a 12-year-old girl, but uh, different times, I guess. You know, he thought she would work great. Apparently, she would film these dark scenes in the film and afterwards would be laughing and giggling and tiptoeing around the set like nothing happened. So very unaffected by what was going on. Friedkin was sold on Blair from the beginning and she got the role. Originally, Friedkin planned to use an electronically altered version of Blair's voice for the Pazuzu dialogue scenes, but this turned out to lack the impact they wanted, and they ended up casting voice actress Mercedes McCambridge to do those voices. Warner Brothers decided not to credit her until they were faced with uh, Screen Actors Guild arbitration. Now, only the first 30 prints of the film didn't have her credited, and those were, you know, the ones they sent out to the initial wave of theaters. We'll get into that much later. But it did hold up the release of a soundtrack that had clips of her voice on it. Warner's hired Eileen Dietz as Blair's stunt double, even though she was 15 years older than Blair. She was also used as the face of Pazuzu in the film. Blair specifically remembers Friedkin telling her that the film wouldn't succeed if she wasn't in as many scenes as possible. I think that's a bit of manipulation. I know what he's trying to get at. You know, he probably doesn't want Dietz in there a whole lot. Probably wants Blair to do as many of the Reagan scenes as possible, but uh, that would have consequences as well. Dietz's role was really reduced due to this, and Friedkin estimated she was only in the final product for about 17 seconds. Now, why is that important? Well, 
This all kind of angered Dietz, and she publicly claimed to be in all of the possession scenes. Warner Brothers responded that, yeah, it was a little bit more than 17 seconds. She was in there for 28 seconds, exactly, and that it didn't really dramatically affect the film. So that kind of was the end of that. Warner Brothers reportedly wanted Marlon Brando for the role of Father Marin, but Friedkin shot them down immediately. Friedkin decided on Max von Sydow. Now, the way he came to Sydow was he was looking at a photo of the priest who had inspired Blatty for the character in the first place, and you know he just pictured Max von Sydow in that role. Owen Roisman was the cinematographer for the film. He previously worked on the French connection with Friedkin. The two wanted to use lighting to affect the mood and tone of the film. For instance, the McNeil house would seem warm and inviting, but they would use lighting to suggest there was something ominous or sinister under the surface. Principal photography finally began on August 14th of 1972. Many of the interior shots were filmed in New York City at CECO Studios, even though the film was set in Washington, D.C. The opening scenes were filmed on location near Mosul, Iraq, and WB was really worried that Friedkin and the crew wouldn't be able to return from Iraq. You know, U.S. relations with Iraq at the time, and really across most of the time, haven't been very good. So they were worried about that. Friedkin actually negotiated with local officials of the ruling party at the time. And they came back with some stipulations required him to use locals for the crew and to teach filmmaking to anyone interested. They had to limit filming to dusk and dawn due to the temperatures that would reach up to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Now jumping back to D.C., the house that they used for the McNeil house was actually set a little further back from the stairs where Father Karras falls. Now, getting back to budget here, the crew built an entire extension on the house so that Miller's stunt double, you know, so it was closer to the stairs and his stunt double could fall directly from the house down the stairs. They used half-inch rubber padding on the stairs so that he could land safely. They shot other scenes at both Georgetown University in D.C. and Fordham University in New York. Another interesting fact about the set here is Friedkin wanted the room for the exorcism scenes to be cold enough to see the actor's breath. He had a $50,000 refrigeration unit installed, and that would be set to cool the room to negative 20 degrees. However, this caused its own problems. The set lighting would heat things up, making the refrigeration only effective for three minutes at a time to where they could see the actor's breath. They could also only get five shots finished each day due to frequent breakdowns. So it took them an entire month to film the full exorcism scene in Regan's room. As he did with a lot of stuff, Blatty protested, adding the head-spinning scene as he argued, yes, this is supernatural, but supernatural doesn't mean impossible. However, after the audience reaction to the scene, he admitted that Friedkin was right. Or as he put it in his words, Friedkin made an idiot of me again. The spider walk scene was performed by stuntwoman Ann Miles, who used her college gymnastics experience to pull it off. They had a harness for her, but she didn't actually need it. 
Vladdy wanted to keep the scene in while Friedkin decided to cut it because it happened too early in the film. Fans argued over whether the scene was actually ever shot for years, and Friedkin even went as far to deny that it was himself. The footage was finally found in the 90s in the Warner's archive by someone who was putting together you know, a historical article on the film and was included in the director's cut that was released in 2000. Now, the scene that they inserted was kind of grainy and pretty choppy, and I think they even added, you know, blood coming out of Reagan's mouth. I think that was added in a shot of that, but so yeah, that was that was added in later on. Dick Smith was responsible for the makeup that aged Max von Sydow 30 years in the film. The makeup job is almost universally praised and thought by many to be the best aging makeup in a film. And I I think it's incredible. For Regan's makeup, they wanted it to seem like she was inflicting wounds on herself, and that goes back to, you know, the cross, the crucifix scene earlier on, and that the wounds would become infected over time. So it gives kind of like, yes, this she might be possessed, but she's also probably doing this to herself as well. Whether that's under her control or not is up for debate, but they also used green contact lenses to make her seem more like a beast. Now let's get into the production issues and curse rumors about the film. I think many of these are coincidental. We can get into that at the end of this this little section, but uh, let's go through it. Due to all the problems they faced, filming took 200 days, which was more than twice of the planned schedule of 85 days. So that's pretty insane. It took them almost, you know, it's better part of a year to film this thing. So starting off, they had a bird fly into a circuit breaker early on and set fire to the house sets. Everything was destroyed in the sets, with the exception of Regan's room, which was, you know, I'm sure what added fuel to the fire of the curse rumors. This caused a six-week delay in filming as they had to rebuild the sets. There was also damage caused to the set later in filming due to the sprinkler system being activated. The film had another two-week delay when the Pazuzu statue was sent to China instead of Iraq. So again, coincidental, but (laughs) it happened. Bad management, maybe? I don't know. Both Ellen Burstyn and Blair would sustain long-lasting back injuries from the film. Again, I don't think that's a curse. I think that's that's a negligence issue, but... Or just, you know, accidents happen, too. In the scene where... Burston gets thrown by Regan. She fractures her tailbone. This sidelined her for two weeks, and she had to walk on crutches for the remainder of filming. Now, this made it into the final film. This was actually the one where she broke her tailbone was actually the one that made it into the the final product. She didn't get it treated properly early on because she was, you know, filming a movie, which caused her to have chronic back pain the rest of her life. Again accidental borderline on negligence that you don't let her get it treated or that she didn't get it treated herself. Blair fractured her lower spine thanks to the bed rocking scene. They didn't have her strapped in tight enough and she paid for it for the rest of her life. And again, this made it in the final product as well. The one you see in the film is the one where she's not strapped in tight enough and she's basically shredding her back. Now, on two other separate occasions, we had crew members who 
cut off, you know, a toe and then a thumb in a different accidents. So, yeah, all those accidental. I'm not convinced of the curse. Again, I think a lot of this comes back to, I mean, these are just seems like oversight stuff with the Reagan's room thing. I think that leads a lot of people to believe that this is cursed. And then with the deaths, which we'll get into here in a minute, but that could just be a timing thing. It's not like all the cast members are dropping dead. Well, I mean, okay, well, let's just get into that. Then there are the deaths connected to this film. Jack McGowan, who played Burke, died shortly after filming his scenes. And Valasiki Maliaros, who played Karis's mother, died a couple weeks later, uh, much like their characters in the film. Thing is, with uh, Maliaros, she was 89 years old, so she was an older actress. And yeah, I don't I don't pay too much into that. But then we had uh, Blair's grandfather died during the first week of production and uh, Von Sydow's brother died on his first day of filming. The film was delayed for each of those instances. And then other deaths include an assistant cameraman's newborn baby, the night watchman of the set and the operator of the refrigeration unit. Yeah, that's a decent amount of deaths, but I, again, it could all be timing. I'm, I'm not convinced of this curse, guys. I don't know. You know, people would go on for anything about this stuff. Um, there was also, you know, once the film released, uh, reports in Italy that a church across the street from the theater got struck by lightning. There was a woman who apparently passed out from the film and broke her jaw. There were all kinds of things. We'll get into some stories about children later on. Uh, you know, it was said in the UK that some hospital staff were attending the screenings of the movie. So, yeah, it's all it was all a big to do. Friedkin believed, after all, he experienced on the set that supernatural forces might be at play. And he felt like he was playing with something around with something that he shouldn't be playing around with. And of course, you would think that when you took twice as long to make a film as you were planning on it and, you know, blew out your budget so far out of proportion. To try and put the crew at ease, he asked the father, who was a technical advisor, to perform an exorcism on the set. The priest didn't think that this would be helpful and would maybe cause more of a stir. So instead, he just blessed the cast and crew. Many people tend to believe that the curse was mostly drummed up by WB as a gimmick to sell the film, and I tend to agree with them, but yeah. Let's get into the editing of this film a little bit. The original editor during filming had no film experience and wasn't allowed to edit raw footage, so very helpful there. Uh, Friedkin ended up bringing in four different editors on the film once they entered post-production, and all four would end up taking the Academy Award that they would eventually win for editing. I mean, there was some pretty cool editing stuff on here. For instance, the opening scene in Iraq was set to the rhythm of a blacksmith's hammer that was going on in the background. So that's pretty cool. Friedkin's final cut came in at 140 minutes, but the studio wanted it closer to two hours so it could be played more frequently. Blatty protested this, but Friedkin apparently was okay with it and ended up trimming a little over 10 minutes. And of course he was okay with it because Blatty claims that uh, some of these scenes he cut were among his favorite. And again, he could just be, you know, it seems like these two were petty. He could just be saying stuff like that to, you know, make people feel sympathy for him, but uh, whatever. For the main theme of the film, Friedkin was looking for something with a kind of childhood-like feel similar to Brahms' lullaby. 
he was sent to the Warner Music Library and came across the Tubular Bells album and persuaded WB to buy the rights to it for the film. Now, this gained massive popularity after being used in the film. So, you know, the record was having a hard time selling it released earlier in 73, and the film really set it off. The Exorcist would be released on December 26th of 1973. It was supposed to be released earlier, but the production delays caused it to be pushed back. Friedkin wasn't happy about the date, as he wanted the film to release before or on Christmas if they were going to stick to that December window, to give it a better shot to succeed commercially, he really liked what The Godfather had done, what Paramount did with The Godfather in releasing it in March, and wanted that, but uh, he got December 26th. WB likely wanted to... It's claimed that they maybe wanted to avoid blowback from releasing a film like The Exorcist on Christmas, but I mean, you're still releasing it the day after Christmas. Um, a lot of people said maybe that worked in their favor, but... None of it really mattered because the film was a huge hit. It had a theatrical run of just over two years in its first run, and then was even re-released in 1979. Now, one note before we move on is the director's cut, titled The Version You've Never Seen, was also released theatrically in 2000. And between all of these theatrical releases, the film pulled in $441 million. And when adjusted for inflation, it's the ninth highest grossing film of all time domestically, so between U.S. and Canada, and the highest grossing R-rated film, again, for inflation, when you adjust it. Uh, WB had low expectations for the movie and released it in just a limited number of theaters. I think it was just the 24, 25 theaters or something like that. These theaters were soon overwhelmed, and the film was breaking records at the individual theaters for sales. So Warners was forced to move the film to a wide release. They also didn't expect black audiences to connect with it due to the lack of black characters in the film. Now, this is interesting because I think the studios seemed out of touch this time. They were thinking for some reason that only black exploitation films would sell to those audiences. I, I don't know, but they soon realized that, you know, they didn't open this theater in those limited theaters. They didn't open it in any of the predominantly black neighborhoods. And they realized that in the predominantly white neighborhoods, especially like in uh, South Central in L.A., they were going to the nearby areas and were flooding the theaters. They loved it. So they ended up expanding it to those other areas because of it. Uh, the example that was mentioned was South Central LA. In fact, the film is often credited for the fall of black exploitation among the major studios as it opened their eyes to what black viewers were actually looking for. Early on with the MPAA, many films were forced to make cuts to avoid receiving an X rating. When the film was submitted for rating, the head of the MPAA watched the film personally. So he took great interest in this film here and ended up telling Friedkin, you know, in a time where they were kind of very strict, like I just mentioned, they were giving an X rating to a lot of films saying you need to make these cuts. He sat down and told Friedkin that it was an important film and would be released with its R rating without any need for cuts. So that was a big deal at the time. Many argued that the film should have been X rated once it was released. 
I mean, there are several stories of children being able to get into this because it was R-rated. And remember, uh, even now, I mean, movies, theaters don't typically book X-rated films. That's going to be a non-starter, and you need that R-rating to really have any chance of commercial success. And somehow, children were getting into these R-rated films, and there are stories of them leaving the theater just looking drained and like they had been changed afterwards. Uh, So similar to the Night of the Living Dead stuff, but the difference is Night of the Living Dead, you know, kids could just walk into it because that was pre-MPAA. But it was even rumored that one girl left the theater in an ambulance. Prior to its release, Blatty sued Warner Brothers and Friedkin, demanding equal billing. He would end up settling for the line of William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. So again, a lot of bad blood between Blatty and Friedkin. But uh, let's look at some accolades. And this will be the last part that I have here before we get into talking about the film and its legacy. The Exorcist was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and would win two of them. It was the first horror film to be nominated for Best Picture. So a very big step. In fact, uh, I would say this was one of those, and I think there were several that came about in the 70s, one of those horror films that really gave legitimacy and really pushed the genre forward. I mean, this was something that everyone was seeing, and it was in the mainstream. And horror wasn't just this little niche anymore. Well, it still was for the most part, but uh, it proved that it could be greater than that. And this was one of those films. And later, I know people, you know, would look into things like Silence of the Lambs and Get Out. They're few and far between when this stuff happens. But, uh, you know, here we go. Here we are. And, you know, the impact of that is definitely felt in the way it just was able to turn a horror movie. And this isn't a light horror movie. This isn't a you know, breezy horror movie. This is pretty intense stuff, and it still kind of captured the masses. So for the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Picture, uh, Best Director, Best Actress for Ellen Burstyn, Best Supporting Actor for Jason Miller, Best Supporting Actress for Linda Blair, Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Sound, and that was it, yeah. I actually, I think I falsely said that they won the editing earlier. They did not win the film editing. They won Best Sound and won Best Screenplay Adaptation. As far as Golden Globes, it was nominated for seven of those. Best Motion Picture Drama, which it won. Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama. Best Supporting Actor. This one's for Max von Sydow. Best Supporting Actress, Linda Blair, which won. Uh, Best Director of a Motion Picture, which Friedkin won. Best Screenplay, which Blatty won, and Most Promising Newcomer Female with Linda Blair, which they did not win. Now, in typical uh, Blatty fashion, he was complaining about The Exorcist not winning all of the awards that it was nominated for at the Academy Awards. And he said the film was head and shoulders above the rest. Now, let's look here. Let's see uh, what the other nominees were. So yeah, I don't have really any experience with these other films. American Graffiti by uh, Coppola. We've got The Sting, which actually won. Cries and Whispers and A Touch of Class. I Again, this would be a question for uh, Dave Becker and Nathan Bartlebaugh. 
or maybe Victor Rodriguez who have probably seen these films, but I don't know. I really like the exorcist. I think if a horror film was going to win, that would probably be the one, you know, of my, it's in my top five horror films of all time, uh, not to bury the lead here. And I think it's probably the only one in that group that would be that I could foresee winning an Academy Award. Okay, that's finally going to do it for the history here after, you know, about 30, 40 minutes. And now I'm going to go ahead and get into the impact of this film, uh, why it was important for the industry, why it was important in general, and then just my brief thoughts on the film. I don't want to go too far into my thoughts on the film as I do enjoy it. But yeah, we're going to switch over to talking about the legacy of the movie. Okay, so let's get into the legacy of The Exorcist a little bit and how it maybe shaped things in the industry. And I think first and foremost, what I mentioned earlier is it was kind of a prestige film. And, you know, it hit the mainstream. It really, really captured the hearts and minds of the general public. And horror films just don't do that very often. I mentioned a few examples. I won't get too far into this. But I think that isn't something that should be, you know, washed away. I think it is a big deal that this was such a mainstream success. And it kind of led to more horror movies like that. Think of like The Omen, which had Gregory Peck in it. And I don't know if you could imagine Gregory Peck in a uh, a film like that earlier in his career or an actor like that doing a horror movie. I think it did have some widespread um, ripples in that sense. But also, I mean, you can just talk about the general legacy of The Exorcist. This is still a movie that freaks people out. This is still a movie that people are frightened and terrified of watching it, have a hard time getting through it. And that's kind of not changed throughout the years, regardless of generation. It's one that people always seem to go back to, and that always scares me. I mean, this scared me when I was younger. Just seeing images of Reagan's face and things like that terrified me before I ever even watched the movie. I also want to say, in another sense, with the kind of paranormal, demonic-type films, I'm trying to think if there are prominent earlier examples. And honestly, when I think of paranormal films and like the supernatural-type haunted house films, what I think of up to this point is probably The Haunting from 1963. But after that, I think that's about it. That was the big example for me that I'm thinking of prior to The Exorcist coming out. And then you have The Exorcist, and now you're dealing with demonic possession, which I don't think is something that was prominently shown in films before this point. I think that's definitely a point of distinction for The Exorcist. I think it made that type of film popular, and now, you know, we're sick of possession films. But I don't think, I'm trying to think back if there are any big examples, and there are probably some little ones here and there, but as far as big demonic possession movies, I think this is a tentpole. And if it certainly, you know, if it wasn't popular before, it certainly was now. You get even films as big as the Amityville Horror, 
were copying and trying to ape the exorcist and you had a ton of exorcist ripoffs. I thought something like Amityville two was kind of an exorcist ripoff and get to that later in the episode. Um, something like beyond the door was definitely an exorcist ripoff, the Italian film. There were tons of exorcist ripoffs and paranormal type possession movies that came out after this. And I don't think we saw a ton of that before. So I think the exorcist definitely helped to generate interest in that. Whether you think we've gotten too many at this point, uh, we're oversaturated with them, whatever you want to think. I think this is the starting point for those. And probably, at least in my opinion, it's still the strongest of any of those type of possession supernatural films. Also, and I talked a little bit about films kind of aping The Exorcist and using bigger stars and things like that. Uh, think about The Omen. Think about the Amityville Horror. This not only influenced those, but this kind of was, to my understanding, from what I've read, one of the very first times in a while that major studios had created sequels and a franchise out of a film that really wasn't planned. And this is how we kind of get, you know, before we've kind of got films in a series for the most part, they're planning on making more. They have like a, a plan set out, think like MCU or something, maybe not quite on that level. But a lot of times I feel like those earlier sequels had a through line and a similar feel, at least. With The Exorcist and The Exorcist 2 and the other sequels, I don't think you can really say it was copying the same theme and it kind of gets to this point where we know these horror franchises they're just kind of all over the place think about the amityville films that i'm going through later in this episode think about the sequels to the omen the sequel to this that released in 1977 which you're kind of like just making up new ideas as you go along and you're trying to fit something in with what the first film did and not have a plan i think that's how we've gotten all these disjointed and varied horror sequels. And I think you can look at the exorcist of really being the first one to do that. I mean, not too long after this, we're even getting sequels to psycho and, and films like that. So I think that did play a huge role in starting the horror franchise. I mean, it's certainly one of the earliest examples that I can think of. So yeah, I think at the end of the day, the exorcist has just influenced the horror genre, at least at the time when it came out, so much. I still think it has that lasting impact. It's definitely still revered among most fans as one of the best horror films of all time. I know there's probably differences in opinion out there. I personally think it's one of the best of all time. And we can get into my thoughts here in a minute, but I just think this is one of the most influential and one of the big tent poles as far as horror films are concerned. Now, I do want to go ahead and talk about this film and uh, what I like about it and my kind of ratings and recommendations here. So even though I've been talking about this film for a long time at this point, I haven't set it up really. And here's the synopsis that I came across is 12-year-old Regan McNeil begins to develop an explicit new personality as strange events befall the local area of Georgetown. Her mother becomes torn between science and superstition in a desperate bid to save her daughter and ultimately turns to her last hope, Father Damien Karras, a troubled priest who is struggling with his own faith. The Exorcist has always been one of those films for me. As soon as I saw it, I kind of just fell in love with it. I think even though they're taking relatively unknown 
actors in this. I think from top to bottom, they're all so great. They're just all solid. And you can't really, for all the problems that had with the production and development, you can't really fault any of Friedkin's direction here. I think the film moves along. I think maybe my one problem with it is there's a little bit too much of the going back and forth with psychiatrist and psychologist and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know why we needed more of that or what we got of that. I don't really care for, but everything else in this film is just amazing. The story, you know, we're working here with an adaptation already has something to go off of, but we know that always doesn't work out. I think Blatty working closely with the source material helped to put together a pretty good uh, script and a screenplay for this. And it's really well written. It's really well acted, really well directed. I think it's just, it feels like, you know, you can watch a cheesy 80s or 90s horror film and have a lot of fun with it. But this thing has a certain level of prestige and just budget and everything else put behind it that makes it feel like a step above. And either, you know, doesn't necessarily... High budget, better made film doesn't necessarily mean you're going to like it more. But in this case, you know, that is how I feel. You know, I do like it. It is one of my, you know, top five favorite horror films of all time. I try not to watch films over and over too much, but I, uh, you know, watch this every several years and still enjoy it all the time. I think the horror in this is still striking and startling no matter how many times you've seen it. And that's really hard to do for horror films, especially for us diehard horror fans who just eat and breathe this stuff. It's very hard for us to be scared or uncomfortable or unsettled. And I think this one, even on multiple viewings, still gets to me at some points. The atmosphere that's built in this film is palpable. And just thinking of when like Father Marin first shows up and that scene outside the house and just how everything progresses from there is so well done and so enjoyable. I think the idea of Pazuzu and the whole Iraq thing in the beginning is really interesting and um, really kind of sets it apart from a lot of other paranormal films out there. And it's been said a thousand times. But you just feel so much, especially this time around. I had much more, even than the last time I watched it, just empathy for what's going on with Regan and her mom and just feeling so sad and distraught about what I knew was going to happen to this little girl because she is so likable and she's so, you know, she's she's such a cute little girl, like her actions and everything in the beginning of this film and to see her just be thrown into this and just destroyed during the course of this movie is just so upsetting, especially as a, you know, a parent of young children. I always think of this, not just necessarily young children. I think any age of, of children, you just think about it differently. I think you do. And where I could understand it before, I think it hit even harder this time around. Jason Miller is great in this. Linda Blair does such a good job as a child actress kind of pulling this off. And honestly, you know, I could sit here and just talk and talk about this thing for a long time. 
tubular bells fits perfectly in this film. I think it's so iconic and incredible. And this is, I mean, there's not much more to say other than I don't want to sit here and just belabor the point of how much I love this movie. I, th- I think there's just, there's not many flaws with this thing. Anything I can pick out are kind of nitpicks and uh, yeah, it's such a great film. If I was to give a rating recommendation on this, this is one of my few uh, perfect score movies. That doesn't mean a film is perfect. It just means that I think it is deserving of the highest possible rating. And that is a 10 out of 10 for me. Definitely say buy this thing. Absolutely have it in your house and be able to like pick it up and watch it whenever you want, especially since, you know, you got to pay for this if you don't have the physical version to rent it. It's not streaming anywhere. And these things kind of go in and out with streaming. So uh, just be aware of that. But I love this movie. I absolutely think it's a classic. It is one of my favorites of all time. And that is The Exorcist. I think one of the most influential films here in closing, one of the most influential horror films that has ever been put out. So thank you for joining me on my kind of look back at The Exorcist and the background and history of it and some of its impact and just my thoughts on it. I'll be back with more of these anniversary episodes next year when I'm picking out more. We're looking at, you know, if you're looking at 50 year anniversaries, it's 1974 and uh, so on and so forth. You know, you'll have your your 10 multiples of 10s will be the years that end in four, 40 years for 1984, 30 years for 1994, uh, 20 years for 2004, so on and so forth. And um, then your years that end in nine will be your multiples of five anniversaries. So anyway, you all know how math works. And I'm not going to keep going on here. I will end it here and keep moving on with the show. back with another edition of the Werewolf Rankings. So on this one, I wanted something a little different because so far I've only reviewed very serious werewolf films. So I went with one that was a little bit more of a comedy film. And this was Werewolves Within from 2021. Now I hadn't seen this and someone had urged me to watch it, and I wish I could remember who told me I should watch it. I can't remember at all. 
I apologize. If you remember recommending this one to me, let me know, because I do appreciate it. The thing is, and the entire reason why I didn't watch it was Josh Rubin, and I couldn't stand Scare Me. I thought it was really bad. Not necessarily, I didn't think it was bad. I just thought it was, uh, I didn't like the writing. I didn't like the characters. I didn't like a whole lot about it. So that kind of put me off of Werewolves Within. But I think we solved some major problems here, even though there is still some like cringeworthy writing in this. We do get a different writer. You know, we have Mishna Wolf who came on to write this one. And also Josh Rubin isn't uh, starring in it. So maybe those are the the differences that were just enough to help put it over the edge for me. So Werewolves Within, let me set this up here. Released in 2021, ran for 97 minutes, and the tagline is a whodunit with teeth. The synopsis is, when a proposed pipeline creates hostilities between residents of a small town, a newly arrived forest ranger must keep the peace after a snowstorm confines the townspeople to an old lodge. But when a mysterious creature begins terrorizing the group, their worst tendencies and prejudices rise to the surface. It is up to the ranger to keep the residents alive, both from each other and from the monster which plagues them. So this is based on the video game, which is kind of like a whodunit type thing. Uh, You're trying to decide who I think it's like, who is the werewolf? It might even be a card game as well. I can't remember. But either way, I think this takes, you know, where it takes a step up from Scare Me is it is an actual movie. You know, things are actually happening instead of people acting out stories. And I promise that will be the last time I go after Scare Me. But we have our leads here who are uh, Sam Richardson as Finn Wheeler, the forest ranger, and uh, Milana Venetrub? Venetrub? Vantrub? I'm not sure. Vantrub? I don't know as uh, Cecily Moore, and the rest of the cast I really didn't know. Van Troob is from the, you will recognize her from the AT&T commercials um, that are all over the place right now. But I thought, you know, from the beginning, the two of them, they just have such personality, and they're written so well. I mean, yeah, there's some things here and there that's kind of, uh, off-putting or things like that. You know, you can tell that there was a, a millennial or a, a Gen Z person writing this in places with certain things that I'm just not sure about, but uh, that's because I'm a crotchety old man, even though I am a millennial. So we'll get off of that too. What I want to do is focus on the good stuff with this. And yeah, our leads are incredible. I think they work well off of each other and they really carried that chemistry through the entire thing. We also have a pretty cool supporting cast of people I don't really know. But, you know, essentially in this town that this pipeline's coming through, they have a vote. And it has to be, you know, a majority, I think. And there are three people who are still against the pipeline, and the rest of the town are for the pipeline. You have the innkeeper who is against it. And then you have a, I don't know if they're married or not, but there's a gay couple and they are against it as well. They're from kind of out of town and they've moved here. So they don't really need the money, but everyone kind of has their motives. You know, we have a, 
a man and a woman, husband and wife, who, you know, the wife wants to open up a craft shop. She wants to stop what she's doing and open up a craft shop. So there's that. And the money from the pipeline would help her do that. And you have, you know, a mechanic and her boyfriend who are, um, are a little out there. I mean, all the residents of this town mm-hmm. are out there. And you learn that basically from the beginning. So I think the characters are all, they're not all great. You also have the guy who is running the pipeline and you have a, an environmental scientist who is staying there in the, the hotel. So I don't think all the characters are necessarily great. You're not supposed to like a lot of these characters, even though you do like our two leads. But I think they're all pretty interesting. And especially, you know, there's a character that lives out in the woods who doesn't like trespassers. And I think that character is pretty interesting as well. I'd say there's a ton of comedy in this, especially with the way they deal with situations. There is a lot going on in this movie. And most of it has to do with, you know, deception and how far you will go to turn on your neighbor. And, you know, it starts with a Mr. Rogers quote at the beginning. So, yeah, I'm a little late to this one, I realize, but I can't help but sing the praises. This was just so much fun. It might not be the best made movie in the world. Honestly, I think Ruben did an excellent job directing this. I think it's an excellently directed film. I think it moves along at a good pace. There are really good moments scattered throughout the entire film. So even when you're having something that you're not necessarily into, you know something good is right around the corner. I do like the way it gels. And for those of you who are wondering, you know, is this a werewolf film or not? I think it is. I I think I would call it one. I actually like the werewolf design in this film. I think it's pretty cool. I won't say anything else about that, but I really did love the werewolf design in this film, even though it's 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 very different from a lot of the other werewolf films that we've seen and a lot of the other werewolf designs. And it's a completely different werewolf film than a lot of the other ones as well. You know, it's not a straightforward, just people getting picked off one by one type of thing. There's a lot more intrigue. There's a lot more of dealing with what's going on in between the different people of the town and how they're interacting with each other and how they're treating this situation. So I thought it was great. I really enjoyed myself with Werewolves Within. I don't want to give away any of the the gags or the ending or anything like that. But just to say, if you were still on the fence, you know, if you're more of a comedy person, let's look at it through that lens. If you're not really a comedy person, I don't I don't know if you're going to get into this because the main draw is the comedy. I think there are some good um, horror moments later on, even though they're not necessarily straight up horror. I think they do a good job of sprinkling in enough serious stuff here and there. And again, the main draw are just these likable leads and how they draw you into the film. But yeah, if you're if you're just against comedy, I guess you're just going to want to skip this one. I don't know. I hate to tell anyone to skip this because it's so much fun. I get like I have a hard time connecting with sitting down and watching just a comedy. But when it's steeped in something the genre like this, I think it really works. And I think this one does, too. So no matter who you are, I'm going to go ahead and recommend this. Uh, You can watch this on Hulu, so it's pretty easy to find. And I would give Werewolves Within a, I think, an 8 out of 10. I really did enjoy it. And looking back when I was putting this back in my 2021 list, I think this one would have just made 
my 2021, you know, top 25. That was the first year that I did a top 25. I think that one would have been just on the edge. So it would have been like my number 25 or something, but I think it would have definitely made the list that year. All right, so we are now five films into these werewolf rankings. I might do a couple more of these and then move on to a different monster for a little bit. I'm not sure. But to run down the list right now, at number five, we have The Beast Must Die. At number four, The Wolfman 2010. At number three, uh, She-Wolf from 1983, I believe. That is the Polish film. Then you have the Japanese film Kibikichi. And Werewolves Within sitting in that top spot right now. So I'm going to put out a graphic that shows kind of the rankings after I've released the episode at some point, and I will keep track of that as it goes along. But that's going to do it for this Werewolf ranking segment, and I'm going to go ahead and move on into the next segment. I'm finally back with another edition of the Amityville Horror Franchise Review. Now, if you'll remember back from the last time we did one of these, and I think that was in September, I'm going to be covering all of the Amityville films up until the Amityville Horror 2005, so none of the garbage spinoffs, which, not to say some of the movies in this franchise aren't garbage themselves, but basically the studio type Amityville films. So all the way through, you know, the Amityville dollhouse and the remake, and then the Amityville awakening from 2017. And that's it. So on this episode, unfortunately, I had the displeasure of watching Amityville Two: the possession and Amityville 3d. And I'm really glad we do have some background and set up for Amityville Two. And we have a little bit for Amityville 3 because I honestly just don't have a ton to talk about on those movies. This was not a good, a good batch. 
Okay, but let's let's go ahead and get started with this. I don't know how long this is going to take. I hope you're not disappointed by this one, but really don't have nice things to say about these two movies. On Amityville 2, the film was a co-production between the U.S. and Mexico, but also ended up with an Italian director, and we'll get into all of that a little later. George Lutz was lobbying for the sequel to be based on the follow-up novel to the Amityville Horror, the Amityville Horror 2, but producer Dino De Laurentiis instead worked with AIP, and that is American International Pictures, to secure the rights to adapt Hans Holzer's Murder in Amityville. Lutz sued De Laurentiis over this and lost, but for some reason insisted on having the posters state that it wasn't endorsed by George and Kathy Lutz. So, uh, you know, whatever weight that, I, w- I mean, I wasn't around the time, but whatever weight that actually carries with anything is their endorsement. But they just essentially, they were going through a lawsuit and didn't want to be associated with the film at all. John Huff and David Ambrose were initially tabbed to direct and write the film, respectively, and production was set to begin in September of 1981, but this was all pushed back and the two would be replaced. But I think David Ambrose would come back to write the third film. Dardano Sacchetti was originally working with De Laurentiis in London to write a film called The Ogre. De Laurentiis brought Damiano Damiani in to direct, and he wasn't a fan of the script. He told Sacchetti that he would convince De Laurentiis to do something else instead, which is how the Amityville 2 idea was born. Sacchetti wasn't very happy about this, and would later recycle that uh, script for the ogre and use it in Lamberto Bava's film from the late 80s, which I just recently watched this past October, and um, it's it's nothing to write home about. And Damiano Damiani, by the way, was a very prolific Italian filmmaker. He did a lot of films. Also did the film The Witch. I think it was just titled The Witch, but uh, the Italian title was La Strega in Amore. So that's where I really know him from, is that film that came in that gothic Fantastico set. Tommy Lee Wallace did the screenplay on this film, and he would also write and direct Halloween 3, which was released in the same year. So there were two things from Tommy Lee Wallace in 82. Now, it was supposed to start in September, but principal photography didn't end up beginning until March of 1982. They used the same house from the first film during filming in Toms River, New Jersey. They shot for two weeks in New Jersey and finished up with studio shooting at Estudios Churubusco Azteca in Mexico City. They would film there for around eight weeks. The decision to film in Mexico, unsurprisingly, mainly came down to cost-related issues. It was much cheaper to film in Mexico City than it would be in Hollywood. Jan and Mark, who play the two young children in the film, were played by a real-life brother and sister. Here's an interesting one. Ed and Lorraine Warren were brought in on this film as demonology advisors. So whatever good that did them, but, you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren of the, the paranormal investigators. But, you know, one of their biggest cases was the Amityville case, so it makes sense they were involved. Even though this really doesn't have anything to do with the Amityville 
haunting or anything else like that. Speaking of, although the Montellis, which is the surname of the fictional family in this movie, are supposedly based on the DeFeo family from the, you know, the original Amityville story, and the film has always been thought of as a prequel, there are several discrepancies. The technology in the film is consistent with the 80s and doesn't fit the time period prior to the Amityville horror. The murders also happen in a very different manner than in the DeFeo situation, and George and Kathy Lutz are mentioned at some point, I believe. At least that's the note I have down here. There's also the fact that Sonny, who is the oldest son, and if you've seen the original Amityville Horror, you know what you know what role that Ronald DeFeo had played in that. But uh, Sonny looks nothing like Brolin from the original, even though it was discovered in the original film that Ronald DeFeo looked very similar to Brolin's character. I think that was the whole point of it. And Sonny looks nothing like that. So those are kind of all the evidence against this actually being a prequel and more of it just being its own story set in the Amityville house, which, you know, makes a lot of sense to me. A, another fun fact here is that the character of Sonny, who we were just talking about, Burt Young, who played Polly in the Rocky movies, is in this. He's kind of the father character. And uh, Sonny, the oldest son, has a Rocky poster in his room. That's a that's an interesting piece of kind of connective tissue there. There were some negative reactions when Damiano Damiani's first cut was shown to test audiences. Turns out they didn't much care for the incestuous sex scene in the film. This scene was later shortened to cut away at a certain point. There was also a scene of rape between Burt Young's character and his wife character, this was really only hinted at in the film as it was completely removed. Damiani apparently put these scenes in because he wanted to upset the viewers. Yeah, honestly, if they would have went any further with it, I don't, I don't, I would have liked this film even less. So I, I don't know what the guy was thinking. There were also several other deleted scenes that had nothing to do with any of that other stuff. But up to this day, none of them have been released in their film form. Now, we do have some stills of a scene that was released on, I think, a UK release of a scene that showed the priest in the film blessing souls. But again, that was never put to film or never released on film. So none of the deleted scenes really survived. Orion Pictures eventually acquired the rights before release and distributed it theatrically in the U.S. on September 24th, 1982. The film would go on to make $12.5 million in its run. MGM released a DVD of Amityville 2 on April 5th of 2005, and Scream Factory released it on Blu-ray in 2013 as part of the Amityville trilogy set with the first film and Amityville 3D. Now, I typically don't like to call people out on this show, but Megan Navarro from Bloody Disgusting apparently wrote an article in 2017 stating that she thought Amityville 2 had better pacing and special effects than the original, and that it was the superior film of the two. Apparently, Roger Ebert also shared this sentiment, and 
I think you guys know from my episode, I'm not the biggest fan of Amityville Horror, but I think it's still a pretty solid film. For someone to say, and I got to be careful of how I word this, and I am going to revisit, you know, the Amityville, Amityville 1992 for these episodes and see if it um, holds up for me from last year when I watched it for the first time. But I probably like Amityville 92. It's more entertaining to me than the original. But I would never say it's a superior film and it's a better film, the original, because the original is pretty solidly made. It has, you know, better acting. It has better. It's just better production values, better all around. For someone to sit there and with a straight face, say that Amityville 2 is a superior film, I'm going to have to call you out. And you can say that you like it more. You can say that you prefer it. Don't call it a superior film. I have a problem with that wording. We're going to get into my opinions on this film right now. But yeah, I have a hard time abiding by someone saying the film is better than the original Amityville because I I don't get it. If again, if you like it more, if you if it's you know, you prefer it to the original, absolutely. But I don't think it's anywhere near a better movie than the original. At that point, you're not really. You're kind of saying an opinion, but you're kind of factually saying, you know, because this has better pacing, better special effects, it's better than the original. And I don't think that's the case in any sense of the imagination. But I know people like that film. I'm not trying to downplay that. And I'm absolutely saying, if you like that film better than the original, that's good. You know, like I said, I like Amityville 92. I have no room to talk about anything. That's probably my favorite in the franchise as of right now. And that is a terribly made movie with a low budget. And I don't think that many people actually like that movie i don't i don't know but i'm just saying there's a there's a difference in wording here so let's go ahead and talk about amityville 2 a little bit so we already know who directed this i went over it uh released in 1982 anthony and dolores montelli along with their four children move into the dream house in amityville and are immediately plagued by a string of paranormal experiences. When the abusive Anthony wrongly places the blame on their children, physically lashing out at both them and Dolores, she recruits a local Catholic priest to exorcise the house. <sighs> so once again, we do have Burt Young here, pretty much the only recognizable actor, or at least the only one that I recognized. Here's the thing with Amityville 2, and I want to kind of lay this out is I think there are bits and pieces of Amityville 2 that are really good. There's some good moments in there. My problem, one of my problems, is that basically we have a character, I don't know if I'd call him the main character, but he kind of is. He's kind of the one we follow, who at no point I had any affection for. You know, I don't like this character. I've never, I didn't like him in any part of the film. And we're supposed to follow his story throughout the entire movie. And I just have, there's nothing there for me. And 
that's one of the problems. I think another problem is just it's Burt Young. Burt Young doesn't belong in this movie. He is essentially playing the Polly character at his worst in this movie. It's like all he knew how to do. That's it. And you add in the, you know, we talked about these scenes that were cut and you add in that kind of stuff too. And there's still insinuations to that in the movie. I mean, it's all still there. It's just from the beginning, Burt Young in this film is terrible. You know, he's a terrible person. He's acting terrible. It's not even as good as Polly either, because Polly is annoying and you hate Polly at several different points. But there's no any kind of lovable, redeemable qualities about Burt Young's character in this film. And I, I think that casting was a mistake. I honestly do. Yeah, so I, I think that's the main part is, you know, there is one character. I don't really care for the mother. Um, the mother's going through stuff at the beginning, and I don't really have any attachment to that either. The one character I do like, you know, something happens to that character. And you look down and you see you still got like a half hour left. And it's like, well, who am I supposed to follow now? Because, you know, there is a priest character. Don't really care for him at all. There's nothing there attached to me to these characters. So first and foremost, just the characters. I have no attachment to the ones who are supposedly the main drivers throughout the entire story. And the one character I did like was kind of tossed away and kind of used in a bad way as well. What is up with this series, this franchise, and incest? Can we talk about that? Is Amityville 2... Was that setting a precedent for incest later in the series? Why? Why are we taught? Why are we here? How did we get here? And it kind of starts from the beginning. And I hate to say that, and I'm sorry for anyone if you haven't seen this, but why? Why are we looking at incest in this film? And it lets you know right from the beginning that there's something weird about this brother and sister or there's something not quite there you see some like flirting early on and which had me questioning whether they really were brother and sister they are brother and sister yes and wow yeah i don't i don't get it and the way it unfolds it's like it's just like it's perfectly natural and like nothing different. And I, I don't I don't understand it. It's just why was that put in? And I think it would have had I think it had ripples on the the franchise. And we'll talk about that certainly in 92. And we're going to talk about that in three next up. But I just don't I, I don't know what this series is. I think this did set the precedent for it to happen later on in the series like that is. That's one of the most taboo things, probably. I wouldn't say this is the most taboo of incest, if we're putting this on a scale. I don't know why we have to do that. Uh, I, I don't know where else to go. I'm going to move on from this because I'm, I'm getting grossed out just thinking about it. So we also have a, the younger uh, brother and sister in this who are played by the real-life brother and sister. And... There's some interesting stuff. I really kind of like their relationship. Apparently there was a a scene cut out where the sister dunks the brother's head under the water when he's taking a bath. 
But there are some scenes where she looks like she's straight up trying to murder him. And then she's like, oh, no, I love you. Never mind that. It's very weird. I actually really like that. That feels like the most Italian thing in this entire film. And I, I love those <laughs> those scenes for some reason. So it's not all negative. And I, I do think I liked the film a lot more in the beginning. I just didn't find it scary at all. I didn't find any of the stuff upsetting, be, uh, you know, other than the the obvious thing that I just went on a diatribe about. But the actual horror moments aren't that well done. Um, they're not that scary. They're not that, you know, horrible things happen, but it's not really scary to you. And I think, again, a lot of that just comes down to the characters and not connecting with any many of them. I did connect with one. But it's such a frantic film. It kind of switches gears for sure at some point and almost becomes like a like an exorcist ripoff at some point. And I don't think that's much of a spoiler because this is called The Possession. But yeah, it it veers into exorcist ripoff territory and man, I I just don't know what happened in this movie. I kind of want more details of what what they were thinking, what they were going through, but you know I'm not going to go out there and buy a Blu-ray of this thing. I think it does have some enjoyable moments. There are some redeemable qualities for sure, but overall it's just, it's kind of boring. It's kind of, it's like it's trying to be crazy and over the top, but it doesn't do it in a, in the right way. I guess it doesn't connect with me because I do, I do like a lot of things that do go over the top, but I, I just don't think this goes over the top in the right way. So I, I think it's time to move on from Amityville to the possession. I don't want to sit here and trash it. Um, again, I, I do like one character. Let me, uh, Diane Franklin. And, you know, she's went on to talk in interviews later and she kind of, I don't think she, she kind of had a rough time on this movie. Not, I mean, it seems like she had a good time filming overall, she had already been nude in her first, you know, her film debut before this. So they knew like she didn't have any problems with that. But essentially, I think she, you know, they were filming in Mexico City. I don't know how old she was at the time. Let's see. She was born in 62. So she would have been about 18, 19 at the time, probably 19, 19 or 20. And they were filming in Mexico City. There weren't any parents or anything on set because they were in Mexico City. And they kind of were trying to convince her to be fully nude in this film. And she just didn't want to do it. Luckily, she did stand her ground. But I think for the extended scene of, uh, you know, her her moment, um, she said they filmed her back and she couldn't do anything about that, which uh, luckily. You know, there was nothing left in the film anyway, but I do like her character and I feel for her character to an extent I don't necessarily get her state of mind, but um, yeah, that's probably the one character that I attached myself to in this film. And I think she does a good job overall, even if she's working with a little bit of a weird material. But, uh, you know, she claims, even though there's darker stuff in this film that's tackled, that uh, it was a very pleasant experience to film for the most part. Uh, for Amityville 2, The Possession, I don't want to be too harsh on it, but I... I still have to come in at like a five, I think. And that's pushing it. A five is pushing it. And most of that is for Diane Franklin in this film. 
I just didn't like it at all. And I, again, I know it has its fans out there. I just don't think it's crazy in the right ways. And yeah, it just didn't do a whole lot for me. But I guess I guess I had more to say about Amityville 2 than I thought. But let's go ahead and things aren't going to get better. Let's move into Amityville 3D. You know, if I seem a little bitter, a little frustrated on these reviews, it's because I had plans of spending my day when I was watching these, watching something else. And then I've remembered that I had to watch these two films for the podcast and thought I'd get it out of the way and uh, kind of put a damper on my day. So I don't think that helped me either. But I did go in wanting to like Amityville 2 just didn't necessarily do it for me. Amityville 3D. So this was another co-production between the U.S. and Mexico. Once again, they did the exterior filming at the original house in Tom's River and the studio filming in Mexico City. They also filmed the car accident in the streets of Mexico City. The character of John Baxter in this film is loosely based on... Stephen Kaplan, who was the man who was trying to discredit the Lutz's Amityville story and prove it was just a hoax. So you kind of have to go in, and I think this was the one, at least at this time, it was the only one that was not really based on any kind of Amityville fiction or anything like that. And it was more based on the the real-life ongoing battle that the Lutzes were having in court and, you know, kind of fighting off people who were saying everything was all a hoax. And you really see that in the opening scene of this, this uh, film. Orion Pictures and Dino De Laurentiis were back to release and produce this one. Richard Fleischer was in the director's chair this time around, and unfortunately it doesn't live up to some of his other work. By this point, he was in his mid-60s, so this was definitely the latter part of his career. You know, Fleischer had done Soylent Green and uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Fantastic Voyage, but by this time, he was doing stuff like uh, Red Sonia and uh, Amityville 3D and, you know, Conan the Destroyer, the sequel to uh, Conan, so... And this was really like his, let's see, he directed four films after this. So this was this was right there at the end. It was basically Amityville 3D in 83, uh, Conan the Destroyer in 84, and Red Sonja in 85. And I don't think any of those are as highly, you know, lauded as some of his earlier films. Oh, he also did 10 Rillington Place, which is a pretty excellent, excellent film, uh, kind of like a crime thriller and uh, Tora Tora Tora, he's done a lot of great stuff, but, and uh, one of Dave Dr. Shock's Becker's favorites, Dr. Doolittle, and, you know, I'm joking, of course, but either way, Fleischer had a, had a pretty good filmography before this point. I said we would talk about the repercussions of the incest and all that other content in Amityville 2, and now is the time. You'll notice if you look, and probably if you watch this, that this film is pretty tame, and it's rated PG. This was done in response to the complaints of people who watched Amityville 2 and didn't like its content. So, you know, they thought Amityville 2 went way too far. So let's dial it back and make a PG horror film. And you gotta remember again, if you recall, there was no PG-13 rating at this point. 
but I don't even know if this would have gotten a PG-13 if it existed. I really don't think it would have. Due to the ongoing legal battle with the Lutzes, the film was never marketed as an official sequel. It does reference the events of the original Amityville Horror, though. It released on November 18th of 1983 and would make $6.3 million in its theatrical run. It would be the last Amityville film to be released in theaters until the 2005 remake. So, you know, direct-to-video after this. That's what we have to look forward to. Even though it was released theatrically in 3D, the, you know, at some point, the only time it had been released on in 3D uh, on home media, I think there were two occasions. The UK Blu-ray that released in 2012, and I think it was in 3D on that Amityville Trilogy set that I referenced earlier from Screen Factory. When MGM initially released the film on DVD, though, it was under the title of Amityville 3D. This caused confusion as the film wasn't in 3D, and others thought it was actually a 3D version of the original film, but of course that wasn't the case. Due to this, MGM changed the box art to reflect the international title of Amityville 3, The Demon. That is all I have on the background on Amityville 3. Let's go ahead and talk about this one for a little bit if we we can. Released in 1983, and uh, here's the little warning. Uh, The tagline is, warning, in this movie, you are the victim. Yeah, pretty cheesy. To debunk the Amityville house's infamous reputation and take advantage of a rock-bottom asking price, skeptical journalist John Baxter buys the place and settles in to write his first novel. But as soon as the ink on the deed is dried, people who have come into contact with John in the house begin to meet with shocking fates. Is it all just coincidence? Or is the house really the gateway to hell? Now this movie is probably a little worse than the one before it, I would say. It does star Tony Roberts, who is almost, you know, if you look at Tony Roberts, he kind of has, you know, a younger, thinner Ron Perlman quality to him. <laughs> even, but I don't even, if you look at Ron Perlman in something like Kronos and then maybe compare him to this, maybe you get a little bit of those vibes. If he was, you know, it kind of fits if he was younger and a little slimmer, but uh, I got Ron, I always get uh, Ron Perlman vibes off Tony Roberts, who has been in a lot of things like, uh, uh, Serpico, The Taking of Pelham, one, two, three, Popcorn, of course. But he is the lead in this, and he is this kind of tabloid journalist, <laughs> almost. But he wants to write a book instead. He has a daughter that's played by Lori Laughlin in this, and Meg Ryan is in this as well. But it kind of starts in this setup where they are doing the seance and it turns out that they have fabricated the whole thing in order to kind of trap these, you know, charlatans and a lie. Uh, these, (laughs) these people are, um, I think they're renting the house out and they're using it to conduct fake seances and things like that. So they're exposing them in that original scene, that first scene. And the guy, you know, has a talk with the real estate agent and is like, you know what, maybe I'll buy this place for nothing. So 
Uh, he's has a strained relationship with his wife and it seems like he has a pretty good relationship with his daughter. But once he buys the place, like the synopsis said, people start getting knocked off in um, mundane and three dimensional ways. You know, this is the one where it's popping out on the screen. Every every franchise has one, right? Uh, Jaws 3D, Friday the 13th, Part 3. Uh, one of the final destinations, maybe the final destination, I can't remember. But it has all the same gags and stuff you're used to. Uh, it's, it's pretty bad. Uh, there are some pretty bad effects in this movie as well. I mean, this thing earns its reputation, I would say. And... You know, I don't know if it's just because I'd watched Amityville 2 and my expectations had bottomed out, but I didn't hate this movie. It's probably a little lower than Amityville 2 for me. You know, you get some you get some pretty bad writing. There's some decent scenes. I think Lori Laughlin's actually pretty good in this. You know, Tony Roberts is decent in it as well. The cast isn't really the problem. It's just all the weird stuff they throw together, and it's like... there's bad effects, there's bad deaths in this, like, they make no sense. Nothing really makes a lot of sense in this. You know, there's a scene where, I mean, you get his partner, Melanie, coming in to to this house, and the housekeeper's kind of shut up in a room and, like, yells and screams at her. There's very strange scenes in this. And then you get something with, like, these parapsychological investigators who are doing sensory deprivation stuff and all these other experiments. It's such a weird movie and I I just don't understand it. It's there are definitely good parts to it. Um maybe here and there there's solid enough acting, it's just not a great script. I I just don't know what else to say. This was the one that I really don't have much to say on. So I'm I'm not going to say much else on Amityville 3D other than you can probably safely skip this one. Now, I don't know if this one's going to be the... The problem is, is I don't know if this is going to be rock bottom or not. Uh, there's just... There's just not a lot here, but... You know, I would come in probably around a four on this one and say this is an avoid. Amityville 2, I say, would be worth checking out, especially since I know people uh, like that one, although this one is streaming on Prime and Tubi and on... All of those. But I wouldn't tell you to go out and watch it. I would say avoid Amityville 3. You don't need to see it. And yeah, I'm I'm just hoping above all hopes that that next time out there are some films that I actually like. I, I don't know. I don't know if there will be or not. I'm probably going to have to because next time it'll be The Evil Escapes, The Amityville Curse, and I think I'm just going to have to throw in 92 in there to kind of make sure I have something that I would enjoy because yeah, I'm, I'm not sure otherwise how those other two are going to fare, but you know, I liked 92, the one after 92. Uh, well, we, we can get into that, but I, I have no idea what I'm in for. So I probably should throw 1992 in there just to make sure I get one that's decent, but we'll see. You know, I think for what it's worth, the Amityville curse has the lowest rating of anything in the franchise so yeah anyway i will be back next time probably see you next year on this and uh, we'll keep going with the amityville stuff this segment went on way longer than i ever expected so i'm gonna go ahead and move on and we can talk about something else
This edition of Screaming Off the Shelves, where I talk about physical media, is dedicated to Dave Dr. Shock Becker. Dave, I hope you're feeling better and you're on the mend. But if you're listening, I want you to know that this one's for you. So for this one, I wanted to pick one of my, again, I'm picking a film that I haven't seen that is sitting up on my shelves. And this time I wanted to pick one that I thought was up Dave's alley, and he probably owns this one. This is uh, part of the Kino Redemption label, and I know Dave loves the Redemption label and loves Kino Lorber. And this is number 24 in that collection. It is Pete Walker's House of Whipcord. So this is my kind of film, and it fits in with some of the other Redemption films, like the genre lens stuff. It just has that... You know, I think this would make a great double feature with uh, genre lens, Night of the Hunted. I think those two would go very well together. But to set up House of Whipcord a little bit, and this is directed by Pete Walker, who, you know, I want to get into his stuff more. I've got several of his films on my watch list, and this might be the thing that pushes me into doing it. But for this one in particular, directed by Pete Walker, released in 1974, and the synopsis is... Somewhere in the middle of the English countryside, a former judge and a group of former prison wardens, including his lover, run their own prison for young women who have not been held properly to account for their crimes. Here, they mete out their own form of justice and ensure that the girls never return to their old ways. So I do own this on Blu-ray, and part of the reason I own this on Blu-ray is because when I tried to watch it one time on Tubi, the print was just so dark and terrible that I just couldn't watch it. So I had to watch it in a better version. Now, I did find out later that Plex has this one streaming for free, and it's a much better version of the film, but I'm still glad that I own the Blu-ray after watching it. So again, House of Whipcord is a very subtle film for the most part. Now, there are moments in this one that will kind of shock you and kind of shock is a very it shocked me because of the situation of what happened. And it let me use my own imagination for what was going on. And I think there's something to be said of that. If you're looking into this one for blood and gore and a lot of kills, you're not going to get it. It's not that type of film. It's a slower-paced, slower-moving European horror film from the 70s, and it fits that mold. What Pete Walker has done with this is create a sense of just this kind of almost borderline unbelievable type of situation, but you could almost believe it as well. It's walking that fine line, and he's created this world that's Oh, what's the word? Uh, It's kind of surreal to an extent. But we have this girl, and she gets in trouble for, you know, exposing herself in front of a photographer. And she meets this guy at a party. She kind of gets off. They're telling the story there. She gets off with just like a 10-pound fine. 
And that was the end of it. And she meets this guy at a party. And after meeting him, she really kind of falls for him. But she's taken to this old prison. And, you know, those people aren't operating in any capacity as uh, prison wardens or anything like that anymore, or a judge. But they're still kind of plain like they are. They have all these women. And I didn't know what I was in for when I was getting into this. I didn't know how sleazy this thing was going to be. I can report that this isn't sleazy in the slightest, I don't think. We do see some nudity in this film, but it's not done in that kind of way. But they have all these women locked up who, you know, kind of got off for their crimes and they bring them in and they're sentenced by the judge and they're treated as prisoners with this kind of three strike system. I'm not going to get into anything else because I think that's already getting into uh, more than you need to know going in, but this isn't going to be for everyone. There are very high highs for me. I think uh, Walker knocks it out of the park when he's hitting on certain notes, but there's also some lulls and some down moments and that kind of brings the film down. It doesn't make it any less enjoyable for me, but when I was done watching it, I felt like I hadn't seen much because, you know, a third of the film was just downtime where nothing really was moving the plot along and we were kind of still getting the same beats over and over again. And that's okay because, you know, for every one of those, you look and you've got something else there for you that really did hit. And, the ending of this movie is, I'd say it's pretty satisfying. The last 20 minutes or so of this film, because you're wondering what's going to happen and what's going on. And I think the last 20 minutes or so are great. Honestly, everything in that in that part of the film is great. And the film is allowed to breathe. And a lot of the times we see this, especially with the European horror films of the 70s, they have room to breathe and they have room to let scenes play out. You definitely get that here. There's not going to be much on-screen violence. It's all kind of left to your imagination for the most part. And I think it's done really well and really artfully. This is almost like an art house film to an extent. I really do like it. I Again, I had no idea what to expect going into this thing. But the acting, I, I don't know. There's some, I feel like you have people and I do, I really appreciate when you get actors and actresses doing kind of the, their local dialect and running that through another language. So for, in this case, we have a French girl who was our lead for most of this film. And she has a very heavy French accent. And yet you have all these different, I feel like there's several different types of English accents in this film as well. So you kind of have stuff from uh, stuff like that. So in places, the acting doesn't seem that great. The script doesn't seem that great, but that's not what you're here for. You're here for the experience. And I don't usually say that, but with these types of films, this is really similar to some of these, you know, genre Lynn type films. But instead of the more exploitation elements of it, 
it's really honing that in. And I think maybe it had a lower budget, which of course the Relenton films had as well. So I think it's trying to rein itself in and keep it uh, very, I could see this thing being made very cheaply. The prison set is probably the most expensive part of this film. But I really liked House of Whipcord. If I had to rate this thing, and well, first of all, let me go through. Uh, there usually aren't too many special features on these redemption releases. But this one, we have Perversions of Justice, an interview with Pete Walker. And I think this is more of like a, because it says by Elijah Dremmer, and I haven't, you know, been able to watch these yet, but it seems like an almost like a read aloud essay. Maybe this is an older interview with Pete Walker, or maybe not. Maybe they're both on screen. I'd like to see it either way. And then you do have an audio commentary by Pete Walker and the uh, director of photography of this film as well. And that seems pretty cool, but that's that's really about all you get. I still think it's absolutely worth picking up. I think I picked this one up on a Kino sale. Uh, those Kino sales are crazy because Kino has so many titles. And when they do their sales, they're pretty much different every time. They cycle through a lot of them. So you might have 900 films, but 700 of those weren't on sale the last time. That's something to definitely check out. I think I got this one for like 10 bucks or something. I can't remember for sure, but it was low enough for me to blind buy it because I have been interested in it for a while. And I've heard, at least from a couple people, that this isn't, you know, one of the top tier Pete Walker films. So I'm very curious to see some of those now, and I'm interested to dig into some of that. But uh, as far as House of Whipcord... I'd give it a 7.5 out of 10 and say it's absolutely worth a buy if you can get it low enough. If not, uh, go on Plex and you can watch this film for free over there. But yeah, that's going to about do it for this segment of Screaming Off the Shelves. I do want to go ahead and close out the show and let you know what you can expect next time out. So it will be another Screaming Chronicles episode. I won't be focusing on horror or anything like that. Uh, I will continue with my Monarch Legacy of Monsters review reviews. I will be putting together a 10-year anniversary of the PS4, the PlayStation 4 uh, segment on there. It's talking about the basically the life of that game console. I'll, of course, be continuing my Alex de la Iglesia filmography with uh, Witching and Bitching in the Last Circus. And who knows what else I could have in store on that. I think I'm going to keep everything else kind of uh, close to the vest. I might be finishing, speaking of screaming off the shelves, I might be finishing that Vengeance Trail set if I can get time to get to those. But yeah, that will be what you can expect on the next episode. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. And you can... As always, follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at Screaming Ages. You can join the Facebook group over there. You can send an email to ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. And I always appreciate you spreading the word, subscribing on your favorite podcast feed, and all of that. But until next time, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly dose of Screaming Through the Ages.